the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. According to a book they used to give out to high school and college graduates, which you may remember, and I don't know if they still do, called What Color Is Your Parachute? Remember how popular yes, that book yes, was? Yes. They don't still I'm do that, I'm older than right? you are by a decade, but yes, I do not remember it. Yeah. By Nelson Bowles. And he said something like, a, a person graduating college now will have 30 different careers. Who knew? But Nelson Bowles was the brother of, little known fact, Don Bowles. Oh, no kidding. Very few people know that. That is an Arizona fact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and most people listening to us don't even know, know who, who Don, Don Bowles is. Sure they do, because the Arizona Republic reminds us every year. Yes, but most people don't pay attention. It Don is. Bowles was a reporter for the Arizona Republic who was investigating the mob, right? And was, Circa 77, 78-ish. Uh, and his, his car, car was, was blown, blown up blown outside up. the Clarendon Hotel. And it became quite the controversy decades later when there was going to be a display of that same said vehicle at a museum in Tempe yep. uh, that had been funded by someone that was allegedly indicated involved. in there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, it was quite not everyone is certain we got the right people on that case still. That's always a yeah. problem. I'm Seth Leapson. That voice is Hugh Hallman, attorney, former mayor of Tempe, educator. The other voice you're about to hear, he's been gone for exactly a fortnight. We welcome him back. It's Lewis Holman, the uh, managing director of Insight Analytics. InsightAnalyticsLLC.com is his website. Always a joy to be back, Seth. Thanks. Nice to have you. We have you every third hour on Tuesdays to talk COVID, and then we also do general politics as well. Um, so on that front, before we do anything on COVID, you have to hear this audio. Please. Lou, can you play Jen Psaki today? Jen Psaki, the press secretary being asked about when Joe Biden's what Joe Biden's views of opening schools are, because this has been you and I were writing about this in April. That's correct. Now, and the CDC just a month yeah. ago said schools needed to be open yesterday, right. immediately get them open because the damage being done to our youth by being shut, shuttered into their homes and in other bad circumstances is causing significant damage. Worse damage than COVID. So didn't we, Jim, in fact, oh, yeah, go didn't, ahead. Didn't we also read out, I think, a very lengthy and well done article by the National Association yes. of Pediatrics yes. on this show? Yes, we I did. think it was in September. That's even. right. That's right. So Jim Hoagland, who used to write for The Washington Post, once said, knowledge isn't important when it's discovered. It's important when it's appreciated. So, you know, we were writing about this in April of a year ago, and now it seems to be appreciated. Listen to this interchange with Jen Psaki and some uh, Workaday reporter. Go ahead. Opening up schools swiftly and safely. Mm -hmm. Could you help us understand what the White House is or what the president's definition of open schools is? Does it mean teachers in classroom teaching students in classroom? Or does it just mean kids in classroom with a remote screen? Help us understand. 
Sure. His goal that he set is to have the majority of schools, so more than 50%, open uh, by day 100 uh, of his presidency. And that means uh, some teaching in classrooms. So at least one day a week, hopefully it's more. And obviously it is as much as is safe in each school one and day a week, district. One day a week in April by 50 plus 1% of the schools. Is that what you thought opening the schools meant? I, you had a great phrase. Do you remember it? I wrote it down if you don't. Oh, it was uh, just what we expected from Joe Biden. Uh, um, you know, Minimal it, effort with co- combined with per- paternalism. That's That sounds like him. And it's you. And, of course, set, set the hurdles as low as you yeah. possibly can so that you might just trip over them with your shoelaces. Uh, set expectations low so that in the event we are successful in getting 55% right. of schools open. Actually, at two with, days a week. Two, right. A day and a half a week right. with coffee. Right. I, I actually am very curious as to what the current current proportion of schools open is and how often they are meeting. So in what the is major it, cities not. Right, right. But, but so, but so how, how big of a goal really is that? Are we currently at 33% of schools are open a day a week or more? Well, so do we only have to open up a sixth of them or in, is nobody open? Like, in, how much is that actually? In fact, I'm going to launch off of this because here's a related point. So Joe Biden's very first act was to uh, sign an executive order uh, making sure that mask mandates that he'd promised our world would go into effect immediately. And the first mask mandate was that one has to wear masks on airplanes, uh, on buses, uh, and in on trains and ships. Well, as as some folks know, I've had to travel some because of the crazy things that I do in life, much of it pro bono uh, to assist others. And I've traveled around the world, in fact. And I have yet to be in an airport where it wasn't already mandated by the local authority that's that right. one wear masks. Right. Exactly right. And that's what's so bizarre. So taking actions that uh, are insisting that people do what they're already doing is an e- example of that, Lewis, that but you're but setting a, a goal and a standard that's already been met. So, hey, look at how powerfully and, uh, and importantly well, the, uh, the, the, the new president's uh, acts have have been implemented right no a max a mask mandate where 90 percent of the population is already masking yes yeah yeah well this is the standard of leadership right it's it's purely performative it's not actually about moving the needle it's not actually about getting us to where we're supposed to be it's about the appearance of being in control and the appearance of moving the ball forward so as long as i have an arbitrary goal it doesn't matter what it is as long as i claim to meet it then i appear to be doing something about it and i can be patted on the back by the press and you know, I'll just have a lovely day of it. Exquisite, we don't actually have to solve the problem. Exquisite acts of meaningless exactitude is what we're engaging in. So 90% of the population is wearing better. masks. Yes. Let's make them wear two. Uh, but fair right? enough. Fair enough. That's, some are. Some are. Of course, that was um, uh, Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci proposed to. No, I, I, I wear one. I keep one in my back pocket. Why do you wear them? You've already told everyone you just had it. Uh, well, people feel good. Um, yes. So my it is not to make people feel good. It is to make people feel comfortable. Uh, so I go into rooms. I go into uh, situations and I do wear a mask. I it it imposes such little burden on me because my ego and my sense of liberty is not imposed upon in that. I'm doing it as my own determination and act. There are lots of things I do like that. So, uh, Shaving, uh, wearing deodorant. Uh, there, certainly deodorant uh, is a mandate from my bride, but we discussed and made fun of the fact that the state bar uh, has made sure that lawyers are uh, deemed essential employees, uh-huh. essential workers, so that lawyers can go line up and get their vaccine sooner than later. Um, I, 
I've been asked, you asked me, are you going to do that? And the answer is, I think it's absurd that there are lots of people and we know who they are. They're over age 65. I ain't there yet. And so far, I'm not terribly overweight and I don't have diabetes that I know of. So we need to make sure that the people who are most at risk get their vaccine. This is the same kind of activity. Here we've got a president. His first acts were to be absolutely meaningless. His second uh, order was to make sure that masks are worn at uh, on federal property. Again, go about. You're supposed to comply with the CDC. If you're on federal property, you have that obligation anyway. So that act is completely uh, a null set. And these orders themselves um, strike me as idiocy. The campaign was all about the failure of Donald Trump to impose mask mandates. Uh, people were voluntarily choosing to wear them anyway. And now the new president has imposed two executive orders that achieve absolutely nothing. Worse than actually that, worse than achieving nothing, it's it's not only that these orders don't actually add any additional safeguards or protections, but they actually then serve as a barrier to repealing all of these restrictions and getting back to our day-to-day lives. Because now, whenever a local airport or otherwise, you know, would have said, all right, we're going to ease up, no more mask requirement. Now there is still that second layer of protection. Thank you, Joe Biden making sure that we then, you know, are going to comply with this new higher federal standard. The president is a prophylactic. Uh, you know, there it is. <laughs> Hard to pick up now. Render me speechless. Let's go to the status of COVID, the reality. Okay. So we have, we have an outline for you folks. So, Lou. So, uh, you know, we, we've uh, been in this sort of second spike now for about, uh, five or six weeks, and we've sort of begun to see over the last couple of weeks. Uh, almost of, four weeks in, Lou. The slide started almost four weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, depending on when you want to make that that call, yes. So we're starting to see reduced usage of hospital beds. They're coming down now. Um, we had a high of about five thousand COVID uh, patients uh, in inpatient beds. Now that number's down to about 2,700. So again, about, about a, a 50% reduction in the sort of, uh, lower interest inpatient beds, slightly smaller reduction on the ICU side. But again, these are positive gains that we're seeing. Um, But, but, but the same issue continues and that is hospitals are still at 90% utilization. Why? Because as COVID patients are removed from the mix, other patients are put into those beds for uh, surgeries that are elective and other activities. So, Arizona Republic, why are you not still touting the fact that we have 90% utilization of our hospitals? Let me, t- let me take a quick commercial break here and come back on this because my guess is moving forward. And, you know, blessedly, if we're here five years from now, we'll look at the hospital utilization rate and it'll be 90%. It'll be 90% Shocking. five years from now. Shocking. It will be. And then I want to talk about AZDHS, and I want to talk about more of the mask mandate, and I want to talk about the relief proposal with you guys. And we'll take your call, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Yeah, I saw them do that live. They don't do it live anymore. Hugh Hallman, we were asking people what their first record was. Do you remember what yours was? The first one you bought with your own allowance. I I think I'm embarrassed to say, but it was a uh, a ragtime record of um, Scott Joplin tunes. Janice's dad. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Was it? What was the first out? But your parents were musical. Your dad was a trumpet player. So 
did you borrow records from them? I did, did. and so uh, I actually didn't. My first ones weren't forty fives. It was they were my father's LPs. Was that a seventy eight? Maybe. Uh, in fact, I I had a twelve street rag yeah. seventy eight yeah. that I broke about uh, twenty years ago, which yeah. made me very sad. Uh, and but uh, it was uh, some Frank. It was my mother loved Jack Teagarden, uh-huh. trombone uh, player, trombone right. player, yeah. and uh, so that's what I spent my time. And then Lewis never. We you, you, did you ever have a record in your life, Lewis? Uh, I had CDs. Yeah, uh, I actually have a couple of, of records on. What was my the first shelf. CD you bought with your allowance? Uh, I think it was a Winds of Plague CD. Some of it would death be. metal band. I'd I think. never heard of. Yeah, it, but, that would but be. he he earned the money. It wasn't an allowance. <laughs> you earned it. Absolutely. Uh, purportedly. We earn our allowance? It's like a guaranteed income, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I come from the other All side the of the universe. Well, yes. yes. Uh-huh. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Hugh and Lewis Holman, our guests. So status of COVID. Um, go ahead right. if you so, wanted to finish that out. <clears throat> so as we were saying, uh, the hospitalization rate is coming down. Uh, one of the sort of interesting things about that, though, you know, when, when we've been sort of yelling back and forth about the Arizona Republic right. always uh, making the case that we're always on the precipice of disaster because we always have a 90% hospitalization rate. What's very interesting about this, though, is that if you look at the change in COVID beds over time, right, the number of beds with COVID patients in them versus the change in occupied beds, you get very different results. The first is going down, the second is going up, right? Well, actually, what's, what's sort of fun about this is that the the total number of occupied beds hardly ever changes over the course. Yeah, exactly. Over the course of this pandemic. And so what you see even from like the, the point at which we had the fewest number of COVID patients sometime in September, I think it was, um, to now we actually, this, this most recent spike, we saw an increase in the total number of, uh, COVID patients of about, I think it was a little over 2,000 beds, I think, additional, 2,700 or so. And the change in the actual um, COVID COVID beds was was double this amount. And so what's interesting is that for every COVID, for every two COVID patients we're seeing, we're only using up one more bed. Uh So there's Uh a weird sort of substitution effect where many of the patients, it looks like, that we're seeing as extra COVID patients are just regular patients who probably would have come in for other things, like we've said before, and are then counted in COVID. Right, right. So that's so some for, evidence of this, at least. Somebody for a hip replacement who has, happens to test positive for COVID did not come in for COVID symptoms. Right, right. exactly. So a hip replacement with COVID, not a COVID patient. Right, and they count but that they as get a the COVID kicker on the, right. That's exactly right. All right, now talk to me about... If you're ready to move to segment two, the use of AZDHS. So we have uh, our governor. Arizona Department of Health Services. That's correct. Arizona Department of Health Services got sued and finally conceded that it needed to allow reopening standards for restaurants, bars, health clubs, and other places that had previously been shut down. So they finally put forward health standards that require the reopening. What I think our governor needs to take very close examination of as he's taken some pretty good stands to say schools need to get reopened. No, I'm not going to impose a statewide mandate. It's a local decision, local control. That uh, the Arizona Department of Health Services is now being used, uh, to quote Lewis, as a cudgel, unquote, to bludgeon uh, competitors. 
So in a competitive market, restaurant against restaurant, health club against health club, what a useful thing to do, uh, call the Arizona Department of Health Services and say, gee, this competitor over here has more than 10 people at a table or there's too many people in the bar, they're too close together, and now you have inspectors running out inspecting uh, restaurants, inspecting bars, inspecting health clubs, and writing reports about what they see. Most often, of course, what they see is complete compliance. But that's not what matters. You might be in compliance 50 times out of 50, and on the 51st try, somebody brought in a party of 11, and they got seated because two of them were in the bathroom, and suddenly the inspector now signs an order that starts the process for closing an otherwise very active, very effective, and very compliant restaurant or bar or health club. I really like that point, actually, that there's a very, it's a very asymmetric kind of uh, uh, outcome here, where whenever you're being inspected, sure, you you might make it very, very often, and most people do make it, but you only have to fail once. And so as long as that happens, then you can really be sent down the river. That's correct. And, and for many of the in, in the hospitality industry, this is now life or death. Lots of restaurants are on their last breath. Uh, I've described that in California, State Street in Santa Barbara, which is like Mill Avenue in Tempe or uh, Old Town Scottsdale, allowed restaurants to have outdoor dining to keep them in business. And those folks spent lots of money building out little cafes on their, the exterior of their buildings. And then the governor of the state of California shut that down and suddenly is under recall. So what you have... And if- miraculously, as they got close to the recall, he allowed reopening that suddenly California had recovered from the pandemic, even though their numbers were hadn't changed. Uh, that kind of politicization of these processes is now happening in Arizona as bar competitors are tattling on one another and just causing problems. And all you really need to understand is regular human beings are managing these sites. Owners and operators have spent lots of money, millions of dollars, opening a restaurant or a bar or a health club. And the managers they're hiring are lovely human beings, but they're still human. And now inspectors start showing up and flashing badges and signing reports. And it's a terrifying circumstance. Most people don't like being pulled over by a police officer and get some flutters about that. It feels the same way when you're operating a business and the folks who have life and death in their hands come visiting you. Absolutely. And and this really is, to me, sort of the textbook example of how regulation can be used by businesses to create more barriers to entry for other businesses and how it can then get co-opted instead of helping people and creating a wonderful environment like we might wish with all of our good intentions, that instead it becomes a tool, and you'll forgive me again, a cudgel with which uh, someone who's already in the market cannot force others out or prevent them from entering. And we now see that happening with the larger businesses that have been benefited by the COVID uh, engine. So we don't have just Uh, cottage industries. We now have mansion industries where we have large players who have been absolutely benefited and now are creating all kinds of economic activity around retaining the presence of the pandemic. And the longer that that pandemic and these restrictions keep going, the more time they have to cash in and the greater that incentive structure becomes for them to keep prolonging the agony. I want to talk about probability neglect when we come back, when it comes to the coronavirus. Cass Sunstein. And I want to talk about the relief Bill, and I want to talk about impeachment and get your two different opinions on that. So I suspect, Hugh, you and I see politics in the world 
I don't know, within about a 90% variance, 10% variance. And Lou and I probably see it within about a 20% variance. So I'd be very curious to get your thoughts on that, too. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. The funny thing about the left, you know, when I was in college, you know, the Deadheads and and all that, they loved this song. They were all singing this song, you know, peace, love, and all that. And I looked up the lyrics. It's a war song. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that. They were dancing for peace to a war song. That's the cognitive dissonance we live with. Hugh Hallman was, um, you were a student at the University of Chicago Law School where one of the more prominent professors, they were all prominent, but one of the more prominent was a gentleman named, uh, a scholar named Cass Sunstein, who has worked in various administrations. I think most recently the Biden, uh, the the uh, Obama administration, but I think he's advising the Bidens as well. He had an interesting, a czar, yes. Yeah, he's in, he had an interesting piece in Bloomberg. The cognitive bias that makes us panic about coronavirus. And the reason I was attracted to it is, A, Sunstein's a smart liberal. Um, B, I'm interested in cognitive bias. C, probability neglect sounded like something Lewis would know something about. <laughs> so I throw that all out there to, to you guys. A couple of things for me first. Uh, Cass Sunstein was one uh, a remarkable teacher. Yeah. Um, and a remarkable thinker, but I'd put him far behind uh, Richard Epstein. I'd put him behind uh, Richard Posner, the judge. I'd put him behind Easterbrook. I'd put him behind a whole host Is of Easterbrook folks. Easterbrook there too? Absolutely. Oh I had Easterbrook, oh, Posner. They were in all in one room. Yeah, wow. It was me and two other students and the the lights of law and economics. It was fabulous uh, to have those folks. But more important, uh, Cass Sunstein, brilliant liberal thinker, uh, pushing on things like nudge, the concept of, of having government choose a decision that we should all make because the cost of decision making is so high, it's better to set a, a rule that we'd all follow. So we should all either be have the box checked that we are going to give uh, our kidneys in the event of a death or that we're not going to. And, and that's an example of a nudge. You choose, the government will choose one box or another box, and then you have to decide against that choice set. And if you choose that government's going to say that everybody will be an organ donor, then you get a whole lot of other organs, and most people aren't really that concerned with that choice. But what's that based on? It's based on the concept of decisions uh, when you have transactions costs, and he stole all of that. Uh, from Ronald Coase, who wrote his first paper at age 21 or 22 uh, that won him a Nobel Prize, and that paper was published in the 30s. So Cass could uh, could uh, spot really quality work and borrow from it quite effectively. But in, in this instance, I think what's more fascinating is D, that Cass Sunstein would write a, a piece about the fact that people are overreacting to the likelihood of death right. by coronavirus. That's what I didn't see coming to. That is right. really the most most important thing. But Lewis has probably the best insight oh. into these kinds of thoughts. Okay, so what is probability neglect, first of all? It's this idea in behavioral economics that when you're analyzing a choice or a, a, pro- a probability, so for instance, how likely am I to succumb to coronavirus? Uh, so this this idea is that some ideas, some concepts that we ponder are so mentally jarring that they tend to the concept itself tends to dominate our decision making and we discard the probability part. And so rather than thinking the chance. Exactly. So rather than thinking about dying from coronavirus as a less than one percent case fatality rate in my demographic, for instance, 
All I see is the rolling death count, and I over-exaggerate the, the uh, likelihood that I will then succumb to it. And so this is sort of what um, what uh, uh, Professor Sunstein is— Sunstein, Sunstein he goes excuse by the me? Sunstein rule as opposed to the Eckstein rule, but go ahead. Got it. Uh, uh, is um, attributing—I actually think it's a, it might be a couple of other slightly different things as well. So there are some other examples, like the idea of buying insurance. We'll get there, yeah, yeah. So—, so the first is going to be something called a novelty effect. So when things are new to us, they stick out in our heads more, and we remember them, and we react more. And so this is why, for instance, we see so first much year hubbub. of marriage compared to the 30th year of marriage. Or, you know, this is a new disease. We've had 150,000 deaths a year, 300,000 right. deaths a year, right. versus $350,000 a day—excuse uh, yes. me. 350,000 deaths from cardiac disease or cancer. The fact that it's new is jarring us to additional action. The other one is then um, thinking about uh, uh, trying to price events carefully. Our our minds are just not wired to to, to deal with these extreme events. Right. He goes into that, what you would pay for a 1% chance of death. Right. And we'll come back on that. I, I just think it's fascinating. And we'll do more of that in just a moment. We're going out with who? John Denver. Be right back. Portions of this show are brought to you by Balance of Nature, the most favorite product I've ever taken or endorsed. No sugar, chemicals, or GMOs, and yet you get tens of thousands of vital nutrients in one daily dose. Improve your health, energy, and boost your immunity with fruits and veggies. All natural, vine-ripened fruits and veggies picked at the peak of ripeness, put into vegetarian capsules with their unique cold press process. Apples, aloe vera, cherry, papaya, blueberries, cayenne pepper, wheatgrass, all healthy, strong, potent stuff. And they have a great deal. 35% off and free shipping for all new preferred orders of their fruits and veggies. Check them out at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. You'll be glad you did. We are talking about this really interesting column in Bloomberg. As interesting from the author who wrote it as it is that he wrote it. The author, a liberal left law professor named Cass Sunstein, and he's talking about uh, this phenomenon related to COVID uh, that is uh, called probability neglect. And Lewis, you were you were saying something about that. Right. So we were talking about the idea that probability neglect comes from when you are encountering a circumstance uh, that you're thinking about. So a new virus has come out. You know, what is the probability that I would die from this if exposed to it? And the idea is that the the circumstance that we're dealing with, whether it's positive or negative, is so uh, uh, disproportionately weighing on us that we then kind of forget the math part of things and ditch the probabilities and then really just focus in on, on whatever it is we're worried about. And so the classic example of this is in insurance, uh, particularly with like travel insurance. So after September 11th occurred, um, people actually measured this by asking people how much they would pay for a travel insurance package that protects them from terror attacks and will pay out if they then die in a terror attack. And then they asked them, they asked a, a, a different group of participants how much they would pay uh, for a life insurance policy for, uh, for travel insurance that would pay out irrespective of the cause of death. And the that interesting they just thing, die. Yeah. yeah, that they just die, no matter what, what happens. And the interesting thing about it was that those 
who are, were trying to insure themselves only from terrorist attacks were willing to pay a high, significantly higher price than those insuring themselves from everything. Which would include including, terrorist attacks. Including yeah, terrorist right, attacks. Right, 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 right. So that's the problem. And that's the, the COVID issue is the, the chance of dying from COVID. This is the time that that one statistic you love, that you have a 99% chance of surviving. Right. That's when this matters because the, the probability of getting it has to be weighed into the issue as well. And so people are taking steps to protect themselves against something that first they have to get. Right. And if they get it, they then have to succumb from it. Yeah. And those two things together, it's a 90, almost a 99% chance that you survive. And if you're under age 65, it's less than the flu. The flu is more transmissible. And if you do get it, more likely to die from it in lower age categories, especially in Lewis's. Which is then uh, greater evidence still for the fact that we have these kinds of novelty effects, you know, impacting our response and deranging our response to this pandemic. If you overeat and don't take care of yourself, you're much more likely to die of a heart attack or related disease than you are uh, to get COVID and die from it. Um, And that's still the case. In fact, we were uh, briefly we've talked about that the the U.S. is still using a 60 day protocol that says if you've tested positive for covid any time in the last 60 days and you then die, the box that is the main one on death certificate says covid, even if you drop dead of a heart attack. And that's the kind of problem we're facing is that people are overreacting. And so now we have a president elected on the whole notion of playing on that overreaction. That's a a, a truly sad condition. And uh, Cass Sunstein's article is pointing out the fact that people here's a liberal left constitutional law professor writing about the fact that people are overreacting to the risks of COVID-19. He concludes, the human costs of this pandemic go well beyond public health. They are social and economic and a product of human psychology. Public officials and others in positions of leadership need to get to work to reduce those those costs, starting with understanding the potentially devastating consequences of probability neglect. The only difference I would have with him is I do call that public health. I think we have too narrow a view of public health. And I, I, I don't suicide, think he would really drug disagree. addiction, alcohol, yeah. Yeah. all of those yeah. things are public health. He wouldn't crisis. disagree. I don't. Think. I, I think that's right. That's and right. so the 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 loss social of jobs, health is also public. Yeah, health the well. mental social health is also yes. uh, absolutely a public health issue. All right, we're facing a trial in the Senate to impeach the President of the United States. We have three generations here: Hugh Hallman, Lewis Hallman, and me, or at least three different decades of life, not three generations. Let me start with the youngest, Lewis. You see this and think and say what? Um, I'm not sure why we are impeaching someone who is no longer the president. That's my main um, perplexion. It also seems weird that someone who is now so obsessed with the concept of unity is impeaching someone who we just had a very, very bitter election fight over. It would seem that if I were looking to extend an olive branch to that other side of the aisle, that this is probably the exact opposite tack that I would take. So the only reason that I think that's not being done, because I'm betting there's a million pieces of advice in exactly that direction to Joe Biden. The only reason, thesis, we can't prove it, that he's not doing that is because he knows he can't. And he knows he can't because he knows he's not in charge. And he knows he's not in charge because Nancy Pelosi is. And if there were ever a report of the phone call that Joe Biden called Nancy Pelosi and said, you've got to drop this, it would leak that she said no and she would win. That's my guess. He doesn't want to make that phone call. That's and, my guess. And I would go one step beyond that. Agree and with you, that? I do in that you said that Joe Biden's not in charge. Nancy Pelosi is. Nancy Pelosi is not in charge. Okay. 
And uh, Lev Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, wrote about this a very long time ago, that you've got people who are pretending to be uh, in charge of the troops. And the reality is that they are just running to stay in front of the parade. And the parade has now got nobody managing it effectively. We have created all kinds of uh, tools by which we start the fires and no ability to control them. And that is really why I'm worried about the impeachment, because the defense that's going to take place of President Trump is not about President Trump. It is going to add value and protection to those people who stormed the Capitol. And that is the last thing conservatism needs, is that there's any defense of anyone who thinks the right response was to storm the Capitol. That's really interesting because he will not be convicted, thus having tied him to a conspiracy with those who stormed the Capitol. They will be letting off by dint of an unexpected outcome those who stormed the Capitol. That is correct. We will have validated things that I find abhorrent, and that's what I'm most concerned about. All right, we'll be right back with some closing thoughts. Brief Bride Dreams. Don't you love that? My guests have been the Hallmans. I thank them. Not enough. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here, as you always are. You've been a steady presence, and I appreciate it. Uh, Hugh Hallman, closing thoughts. The uh, Super Bowl caused me to actually think of first principle issues. That is the most important stuff that leads me to be a classical liberal, otherwise thought of as a modern conservative. Uh, the, the likes of Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, uh, both of whom I was raised by politically uh, at my mother's knee, uh, and Lewis's grandmother. And it, as I continued to think about the leader of that cause, the beginning leader, the font of that at age 28, uh, I think he was 28 years old when he uh, wrote and gave the speech from the, uh, at the Lyceum, about the fact that the United States is so amazing and so uh, incredible as an institution and the obligation we have to pass that on to the next generation is so important that we can understand that it's only real Achilles heel is that we might, through infighting, cause its death by suicide. And as I continue to ruminate about Abraham Lincoln and his genius, it strikes me that modern People ought to understand what the conservative classical liberal movement continues to be about. Lincoln opened and was the first elected Republican uh, of the party to end slavery, the enslavement of human beings. And today's classical liberal Republican, those who really believe in the cause, understand that we are still in the fight to end or to halt the enslavement of people in the United States to dependence, that we do not want to make our people dependent on government handouts, but self-reliant individuals who can rise in their lives and create great results for themselves and their family. And I think that is the most important thing I can continue to consider. You know, it's prescient because we're just beginning a new debate on welfare reform, and maybe we pick up on that next week. That would be a lot of fun. I'd like that I'd very like much. I'd like that, too. Lewis and Hugh, thank you. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you, and class dismissed.